Okay, so um, we have four things on this list. I am a little possibly maybe confident that we'll get through them today. Maybe. We'll see. Okay, so let's, just, let's dive right on in. All four of these things that we're going to be looking at today end up being some of those areas that are going to really distinguish um, Roman Catholics from, 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 from Protestants, or in our circles, a lot of times Anglo-Catholics from, frankly, everybody else. And so, and we'll, we'll talk about some, well, let's talk a little bit of history before that, and this little bit of history might just kill my chances of finishing this in half an hour, but I think it's necessary anyway. Um, okay, there's a couple of myths when it comes to Anglicanism. One myth is we are the middle way between Protestants and Catholics. That is not a thing. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's, like, that's one of those things that gets invented um, in the 20th century because a certain party within Anglicanism is trying to justify breaking from some of these Reformation distinctives. I mean, that, that's really the way it is. Now, if we can describe us as a middle way, it's really between uh, the varying, and in terms of its historic position, and I'm talking when you read our 16th, 17th, 18th, and first half of the 19th century writers, so that's everybody until the end of the 19th century, they would have seen us kind of as a middle way between some of the, the unnecessary squabbles within the Protestant world is what they would have seen. So, um, and, and largely this, this boils down to the way that the Reformed and the Lutherans um, differentiated when it comes to the sacraments. Um, and we don't need to get into a lot of detail on that, but basically our divines historically, while when it comes to baptism, we looked a lot more Lutheran. When it came to the Lord's Supper, we looked a lot more Reformed. But when explaining it, our divines basically said, really, these are fights about nothing. We agree with, with, with these people. So if an Englishman was in Germany, he would, they would be encouraged to go to, the, to a good Lutheran place. If they were in Geneva, they would be encouraged to go to a good Calvinist Presbyterian place, um, even as much as we insisted on locally we're going to have bishops. So that's, that's the way historically things were. What happens in the 19th century, now if you, those of y'all that know your literature, anybody know, know kind of a, a literary or musical movement that really arises in the 19th century? One of those distinctive things, it begins with an R. That's okay, romanticism. Romanticism. What is romanticism? It's kind of looking at everything a little nostalgic, right? And so musically you get these real um, bombastic nationalistic um, t tendencies. You know, for example, even though this is not 19th century, the Star Wars music is very much in that romantic musical thing. It's like we are going to invoke a very particular thing, right? In the, in the theological world, we get two things happening with that. On the one hand, we have the evangelicals who are wanting to differentiate themselves from what they saw as people flirting with Rome, they start to downplay what we historically would have said sacramentally. We don't really believe anything happens in baptism. It's just a, the right thing to do, for example. Um, we have to rescue the prayer book from itself when it comes to when the prayer book says the child is now regenerate. We don't really mean what we say. That's, that tends to happen on the evangelical side. On the other side, we have this group of people that says, you know, we threw out way too much, um, too much, uh, the, the baby was thrown out with the bathwater um, at the time of the Reformation. We need to recover these pre-Reformation things. Um, and so we didn't 
our Reformation isn't, the, isn't really like the rest of the Reformation. We're not really those guys, because we have bishops, and we have sacraments. Yeah, you know who else had bishops and sacraments? <laughs> the Scandinavian Lutherans. And you know who else had sacraments? Every single one of the Reformed. <laughs> I mean, everybody had these things, right? I mean, this was, this was not a thing that, that, that was differentiated. We believed in the church fathers and nobody else did. And that's not true. At the time of the Reformation, you know who was good at the church fathers? Everybody except the Roman Catholics. <laughs> I mean, just because they weren't the ones that were being educated in, in Greek at the time. That was a big problem. So at the time of the Reformation, the, the, the reformers insisted on, okay, we're going to actually try to do things reasonably. We're going to look at Greek. We're going to look at Hebrew. We're going to look at Latin. We're going to rediscover the fathers. And this is what the fathers say. And whereas the Roman Catholic position, and this is going to tick off any people watching on YouTube that are Roman Catholic, but I don't care. The Roman Catholic position at the time of the Reformation was, we're the church, you listen to us. It doesn't matter what reason says. I mean, that, that was, that was and now, now later on, developments change, right? Later on, people start to work their arguments. But at the time, all these things that the people were saying we had lost at the Reformation just wasn't true. And the other thing that happens at the time of the Reformation, or I'm sorry, in the late 19th century, is a particular party says, we need to reunite the church, and we need to reunite the church by, by, by um, basically making overtures back to Rome and the Eastern Orthodox. They didn't really want to reunite the church with other Protestants, because they don't have bishops and they don't have sacraments, so they're not really real. Again, not a position our reformers would have had, right? So these are the fights going on in the 19th century. The pro and whatever, I mean, that's, that's 19th century issues, that's romanticism. The problem is, in our tradition, we have continued fighting these same battles. <laughs> and we don't know why, because we, we don't know why, because we haven't actually done the homework. And so, um, all of that to say that these are kind of certain Anglo-Catholic distinctives that the Anglo-Catholics are going to say, if you don't do this, you're not really Catholic. You're not really the church regardless of what our reformers said. On the other hand, the evangelicals will look at this and say, if you take these positions, you just want to go back to Rome and you might as well just swim the Tiber like John Newman. And, and, and that's, that's not a good way to have discussion, right? So let's talk about these distinctives. You know, and the, these, these parties ended up always talking past each other. And what happens because of this? Because the evangelicals and the Anglo-Catholics were fighting for 150 years. Who takes over? The liberals. Because they're able to come in and, <laughs> and say, um, you know, we push, push all this stuff aside. We're going we're gonna to take over the schools. We're going to take over all this other stuff. And while you guys are fighting, we, have now, we now own the house. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what happened. Um, let's not do that. Okay. So let's, let's look at these things. We'll, we'll talk about what the prayer book says. We'll talk about why the proponents of this, these things advocate it, why our reformers didn't, how you're going to see things done at All Saints. Okay, so we're going to start with two sacraments versus seven sacraments. How many sacraments are there? Well, the prayer book's, the prayer book's definition from the catechism is pretty clear. It says, how many sacraments hath Christ ordained in his church? Two only as generally necessary to salvation. That is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord. That's the prayer book's definition. It's very clear. There, it's, there is some, uh, we, some things we need to tease out of that. Why do people want to say seven? Well, because the church had said seven back in the day. <laughs> That's why they said seven. Okay, why is this a fight? At the time of the Reformation, this was a fight because in the Western church, 
Um, baptism and the Lord's Supper were very downplayed, even though those are the ones that Jesus commanded. At the time of the at the time of, of in, the, in the at the time of the Reformation, the main things were holy orders because you get all your grace from the priests, and if you're not in holy orders, and this is again this is the popular mindset at the time of the Middle Ages. This is not you know. This is not necessarily official teaching, but this is the way a lot of people saw stuff. If you're, if you're a lay person, you're not a monk or you're in holy orders, you don't really have much to offer to the church. I mean, that, that, was, that was the popular level mindset. You might as well just go do your own thing. It doesn't really matter. We want you here, but it doesn't really matter. Okay, that's obviously an abuse, right? I mean, that's, that's a caricature, but that's an abuse. That's not the way the church was set up. That's not the way, frankly, that's not the way, you know, most of the good teachers at the time of the Middle Ages would have seen that as set up. But that's what was often conveyed to the, to the regular people. And so that, that's one issue. The other issue is that sacramental confession is the most important thing for you as a lay person or any other person to do so that you can receive the grace. But you're not actually going to receive communion much more than a couple times a year, if that. Because it's too holy for you as a, as a person sitting in the pews. Your baptism is okay, but really, if you're going to get to heaven, what matters is your confession. Your baptism is a good start, but it doesn't really do anything for you for the rest of your life. Is a lot of is a lot of the way it was being conveyed. Again, this is not official teaching, but this is the popular level abuses. So a lot of the reformers said, "Well, Jesus commanded baptism. Jesus commanded commanded." Um, specifically command of the Lord's Supper, and there's very specific promises associated with this in the Bible. That's not the case with the other five. And so they see abuses brought in with the other five, and they want to emphasize what Jesus commanded. The key phrase here in our category, there are two key phrases in, in, the, in, the, in the catechism. Um, two only as generally necessary for salvation. This is something everybody's going to go through. These are the, and then it continues on. Um, what do you mean by a sacrament? And let me see, let me, let me get to the definition here. Because um, I just skipped around. An outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace given unto us, ordained by Christ himself. So the reformers are getting things very narrow on their definition, excuse me, a lot more narrow than the church had before. The other issue is, and this is something that, that frankly a lot of Anglo-Catholics miss, is that the numbering of the sacraments was in flux for a lot of the church's history. That seven number was not fully set until towards the end of the Middle Ages. Um, it was more set in the West. The East never set on a number. And so when we want to go to the mat saying, if you don't believe there are seven sacraments, you're not really in the church, that, that's an ahistorical thing, right? But at the same time, if you want to say, okay, you Anglicans that talk about seven sacraments, you don't really believe the Bible, that's also not true. Does that, does that make sense? Like, a lot of this is semantics on the 2 verses 7. In fact, the, the 2019 catechism in, um, I'm sorry, not the catechism, but the, uh, the to be a Christian catechism um, of the Anglican Church in North America, when it talks about the other five, it says, okay, these are not sacraments in the same way as the, as the Lord's Supper and, and baptism are, but it's very clear that God does give us grace through them. 
And if you've been if you've been married, you know the grace that God gives you in your marriage, right? If you're if you've if you've been ordained or been blessed by someone that's ordained, you understand the grace that's given in that. If you've ever gone to sacramental confession, you understand how 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 beneficial that is for your soul. God does use these things. So, but so that's the two verses seven. Um, when I'm talking about this, I'm usually going to be emphasizing the two, not because I don't believe in the other five. I love the other five. I, I administer the other five, but because I'm, I'm trying, I'm, I'm keeping things within the, the prayer book's boundaries. So, you know, when, when, when Father John talks about one of the other five and uses that capital S sacrament, that's totally okay. Um, I might not use it in the same, I might not use the language a little bit differently, but that's just emphasis. It's not, it's not a difference in in um, anything substantial. Does that make sense? Okay, so I would say, okay, our, when we're sticking to the prayer books, direct catechism, um, you know, they're very clear on two, but when we want to talk about them in terms of two and seven, that's, that's totally a fine thing within our wider tradition, within our, within our diocese, within our province. Um, but even the folks that do emphasize seven are going to almost always agree and conclude that those two commanded by the Lord, sometimes they call them the dominical sacraments, that is the sacraments given by Jesus, um, really have a special place among the seven. So that's, that's, that's that with the two and seven. Um, any any, any, any uh, further discussion on that? I know I kind of beat that in a bit. Okay, two verses. These kind of roll into each other. Let me cross that out. I won't cross it out. Um, I don't know where my marker is. Okay, let's let's get to the let's get to um, because again I, I think some of these are going to build off of each other. Let's get to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, there is sometimes a caricature. Again, we're looking at caricatures, right? That say Catholics care about Mary, Protestants don't care about Mary. Our reformers all cared about Mary a whole lot. Um, they might have seen that there was some um, imbalance happening at the time of the Reformation in terms of uh, that, that some of the ways that Marian devotions were approached um, and the, the abundance of feast days was too much. But none of, none of our reformers would have basically tried to push Mary off to the side the way you might see in kind of a non-denominational world today. Who don't, they don't really want to talk about Mary because that's a Catholic thing, right? So um, what you find in our, our earliest divines, again, we're talking 16th, 17th, 18th century folks, is a huge respect for the Lord's Mother. In our liturgy, um, we have two feast days that are traditional Marian feast days, the Purification and the Annunciation. And Mary's the only one that gets two feast days. Now, the evangelical might argue, well, you're really talking about Jesus there, not Mary. That's the way it always is when you're dealing with Mary. <laughs> She's always pointing to Jesus, right? If you ever notice one of the icons, um, the traditional icons that has Mary and the baby Jesus, she's always pointing to Jesus because that's the way it's supposed to be, right? So um, in terms of, there, there, there does happen in the late 19th century, we get the Roman Catholic Church dogmatizing some things about Mary that we would, we would take issue with. Um, one's the Immaculate Conception of Mary. That doesn't mean the virgin birth, that's a different thing. 
The Immaculate Conception of Mary says that Mary herself was without actual sin or original sin from the time of her birth. And, that, and they would say that this was a grace that God has given um, to Mary so that she could be the one bearing Jesus. The, there's a couple problems with that. Um, one, we really don't see scripture supporting um, any human being as being perfectly without sin. And that's, it, that's not so much an argument of you don't you don't see that you don't see ever you know when Paul says all of sin and fall short of the glory of God except our Lord's mother he doesn't say anything like that so that I mean that that's that's a, that's a bit of a problem um, also this is a logical argument that we don't see happening in Scripture you have to make you have to back into the argument because you've started at a certain place however you will not find one of our earliest divines that says oh yeah here's where Mary sinned. They just—they basically—they basically say our Lord's mother was probably um, the 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 most honorable of all of his followers, the best of all his followers. Um, in fact, you know, when we talk about her as being um, as, as being pure in some of our liturgy, that's a good thing to say. They—they're—they're they're, you know—and and some of them would even say probably she she didn't actually commit anything on her own, um, but they would also say that's speculation we're not gonna make this a de, a de fide issue. So I think saying, I think when someone says, hey, you know, this passage, this passage, this passage shows Mary is a sinner. Um, this, is, this is where she sinned against the Lord. I think that's a bit of a problem because that's not something that would have been said historically. But Even the, the, uh, the Catholic Bible in Matthew says, and the Matthew, basically I'm paraphrasing, yeah, we're not, we haven't gotten to that issue yet. We haven't gotten to that issue yet. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's get to the next issue then. So so that's that's the sinless issue, um, perpetual virginity. Um, oh, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Did did, did Mary and Joseph um, have relations and other children? If you talk to anybody in the kind of non-denominational world in America, they will just assume yes. All of our reformers assumed otherwise. The church had pretty much almost universally assumed otherwise. Um, when, when talking about uh, James and Jude, um, it was a very, very, very minority position among the fathers to see them as Mary's natural children. Um, most folks saw them either as um, children of Joseph from, he, they, say they saw Joseph was probably a widower, and these were children from his previous marriage. That's kind of the default Roman Catholic position today. Or they would have seen them as cousins of Jesus and um, children of Joseph's brother, Alphaeus, um, or Clopas. That's kind of the default position of our reformers at the time of the Reformation, is that these, these children were not Mary and Joseph, but they were cousins. And the, the issue there is, well, why does it say brother? Um, brother was a lot, was not always used technically to, to be a sibling in those days. And it doesn't today either. I mean, people want to say, well, yeah, but Greek and Hebrew have a word for cousin. Yeah, so do we, but we also don't always use brother. I mean, golly, any of y'all grew up in the 1980s watching wrestling, Hulk Hogan called everybody brother, you know? <laughs> or if any of y'all spent time in the Baptist world, everybody's your brother, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that's, 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 that's kind of the way it was. And, and in, in, in the Greek usage of brother as well as the Hebrew in the Old Testament, so both New and Old Testament, 
the word brother is, is, is at times more, should be translated more like kinsman than brother. You know, this is a close relative. Um, could be a brother, but doesn't have to be a brother. Um, so yeah, all of our reformers did believe that Mary um, was, what had, had remained a virgin after, after conception. Um, it's, we, but, but largely our writers, they're basically saying, you know what we don't want to do? is peek behind the blessed, the Holy Family's bedroom. That's not really our business. <laughs> That's a little kind of um, unsavory to try to speculate about um, the Holy Family and their, and their intimate life. So that, that, that's really the way most of our, our later divines would have looked at it. This is not something we should be speculating about. And for my position, I'm going to default to the fathers and our reformers rather than this assumption that's happened in the, in the last hundred years. Um, does it ultimately matter? As Anglicans, we would say it really doesn't. It doesn't matter at all. You're probably going to find in North America more folks in the Anglican world just assuming that James and Jude were, were Jesus's actual half-brothers through Mary, um, Mary and Joseph, um, than not. But that's largely because we're coming from, a, from a, an American context where that's just a normal Christian assumption because of some of those Baptist and non-denominational influences that, that are everywhere. Um, but, but yeah, our, our, our reformers, our reformers did not. Um, so do we say, do we, do we pray the Hail Marys? Not in our, not in our prayer book that we don't. You're going to find a lot of Anglicans that do, but, um, it, it will not, it will not be something that we do here at All Saints because it's, it's not in our prayer book. Um, proponents of praying the Hail Marys, another invocation of Mary, and we'll get into a little bit more of this with the saints, would say that the, uh, that prayer is just two quotations from scripture, from the, from the visitation narrative. Um, you know, that's what Elizabeth, Elizabeth greeted her, you know, Hail Mary, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, the second half is not from that text. I mean, it isn't. And um, we, 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 We'll talk about a little bit more of that in the invocation of saints, but um, our reformers would have seen that as an abuse because it would be falling under the invocation of saints, which again, we'll talk about here momentarily. Um, but we should, as Anglicans, hold the Blessed Virgin Mary in high regard. We absolutely should. Um, but at the same time, we should say that, oh, the other dogma that, that, that Rome came up with in the 19th century is the dogma of the assumption of Mary. What does that mean? That it is a, it is a de fide, basic issue of faith. If you don't believe this, you don't really believe Christianity, that Mary was taken into heaven and didn't, and didn't die. Um, that's a very early tradition. And we have examples in scripture of people who were assumed. Enoch was assumed. Um, who else was assumed? Elijah was assumed. Thank you. I'm like, I, I'm missing somebody big here. Thank you. Elijah was assumed. Enoch was assumed. Um, another posi position is maybe um, she did die, but then her body was taken into heaven. We, that seems to be what happens with Moses when we, look at, when we look at the Old Testament and the way the New Testament approaches the death of Moses. Yeah. And, and, and you know, in, in Jude, it really does seem that the... the um, assumption of Moses's remains within he would be who he had been rejoined after death. So we see we see those ideas in Scripture. So there's nothing wrong with the idea that Mary was assumed into heaven. 
The problem is when you're saying that this is a dogma of the church. Um, so that, that's, that, that's, that's the issue there, is, is that you, know, you can't treat that as a must-believe issue when it's not in Scripture. Uh, most of the Eastern Orthodox do believe that um, in, in some way in what, what we would call in the West the Assumption of Mary, their, their, their majority belief is more that she did die and then her body was taken. Um, but they would, they would never say this is, a, this is a gospel day fide issue. They would have said this is one of, the, one of the, the best of our traditions, basically. And they would say, yeah, this is true, but you can't make this a day fide issue. I think that's a, be- that's a better position. And frankly, those of y'all that think that Mary actually died, 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 Scripture doesn't address it. That's okay. Dial. Yeah. Um, when I was in Turkey, uh, I visited the tomb of Mary. You visited her house. No, they have it set up as an actual tomb there. I, I'd have to look. I'd have to look into that because, yeah, whether because usually, like like everybody, when there is a place of like a tomb of Mary, it, it's 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 in Jerusalem but it's not an actual tomb tomb. Um, in Ephesus is her house. Um, and every, again, I haven't been there. So, so, so I mean, I, maybe, maybe we'll get there in our Greek trip next year. So I, I, could, I could be totally wrong, Dial, but I, I, think, I think you may have misunderstood because everybody else says, well, her house is there, but, but not a tomb. So may, maybe, maybe you, might, you, you may have been mis, misinterpreting, or maybe these guys are not, are not saying something. <laughs> so, um, but, but yeah, generally it's, it's, generally it's believed that there is no actual tomb of Mary. Um, but, you know, again, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm speaking out of something I don't understand on that as well. Okay. That has, we have five minutes to talk about the invocation of saints. Um, that's probably not happening. We'll, 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 we'll try to get as far as we can. Um, okay. You will not find our prayer book or our reformers praying to the saints. You will not find it. It does not happen in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the time of the Reformation. So why was some of the church, why does a large part of the church do it? Um, how it develops is kind of a windy tale that I, we might, we might revisit this again. Uh, golly, I do not want to go another week. Um, we might have to though. Uh, the lo- the logic behind it is that the saints in heaven are not truly dead. They are before the Lord. And when we're before the Lord, we're alive. Um, and so it's not praying to the dead. That's part of the logic to it. Another part of the logic says we do see in Revelation that the saints in heaven are praying for us. Therefore, why can't we ask them for their prayers? The main problem with that biblically is we don't know they can actually hear us. <laughs> I mean, you have no evidence in Scripture. Of, you have no, nobody in Scripture ever prays to, to, to the saints. You don't have those that are dead being addressed in Scripture. Um, put a little star there. And we don't have anywhere in Scripture that says the saints in heaven can hear us when we talk to them. So, you know, so if the logic says, I can pray to the saints, ask them for their prayers in the same way I could ask my mom to pray for me, okay, that's fine, but I got to pick up the telephone and call my mom. I can't just be here in San Antonio, hey, mom, pray for me. 
and she's in Albuquerque. She can't hear me. I have to, you know, there has to be an intermediary. And we don't have any evidence from Scripture that there is a, a means for them to hear us like in the same way. Because they are not God, therefore they're not omniscient, right? They, just because you're a spirit doesn't mean you can see everything. That's something that only God can do. By the way, that also means that the devil can't see and know everything either. People sometimes treat it as if he does. That's not the case. Only God knows everything. Only God sees everything. Only God is everywhere. The devil is not everywhere. Neither are the saints. So those that advocate invoking the saints would generally say that in some way God makes our prayers known to them so that they can then pray for us. Um... But again, we don't have any evidence that's the case. Now let, let's get, let, let's address that little um, that little star um, that I that I said to put next to all that. There are a couple places in the poetic works of Scripture where um, where it does where someone that's not there is addressed. Those of y'all that know poetry, we call that the poetic device of apostrophe. Um, when when um, in the Psalms, you know, or when we, re- when we read in the, Bene- Be- the, the Benedicite, um, winter and summer praise ye the Lord. That's not, doesn't mean we're praying to the seasons of winter and summer. Oh, ye frosts and dews, praise ye the Lord. We are not praying to the frosts and dews. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's a poetic device called apostrophe where you are addressing an inanimate object as if it, if it could hear you. Now, do we know that all creation praises the Lord? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean the frost and the dew hears us when we address it, any more than it means that when we, in, in that same Benedicite, when it says, O ye holy men of God, O ye saints of his, praise ye the Lord, that they can hear us. So don't get non-poetic doctrine from poetry. That's not what it's there for. <laughs> Right? This is part of when we talked about inerrancy a couple, a couple weeks ago. Um, you have to treat the genres within their genres. Lurgy. Isn't that an argument of futility? Not an argument that it's wrong to do it? Like, isn't there a difference between, like, it might be a waste of your time? Right. And it's actually wrong? Yeah, so that, that is a Okay, the difference between it being a waste of your time, being futile, versus being something that's wrong to do. Um, the, the reason why our reformers all saw invocation of the saints as a wrong thing to do is because of the superstition that was attached to it in their day. And I would say in our day too. Um, in San Antonio, I'm in the real estate world. It's very common in certain parts of town that you're going to say a prayer to St. Joseph and bury a, bury a statue of St. Joseph upside down in your yard if you want to sell your house, right? It's, yeah, you're like, what? It's a, it's a big thing. It's, it's a big thing in some circles. It's, it's totally a thing in some sort of, and maybe it's not as much as it used to be, but, but I mean, okay, that's straight up superstition. And sometimes those superstitions, even if they're starting from a pious place, can start to flirt with idolatry. That was the concern of our, of our reformers. So um, am I going to address the saints? No. Why? I don't know that they can hear me. Now, does that mean that, that the, the, the Roman Catholic or the Anglo-Catholic who is inv- in, invoking the saints is idolatrous? Not necessarily. It may be a lot of superstition, or it may be just that they are trusting that, you know, this is the way the church has done things in certain circles for a long time, therefore we're going to trust that, that, that God is doing this. But um, I'm going to, again, default to our prayer book, which is our rule of life, 
um, for us as Anglicans, which does not do that. I'm going to default to our reformers rather than trying to assemble something from unofficial sources or worse yet, from what, you know, the Pope who hath no authority in this jurisdiction is saying. Does that make sense? Um, but you will see, you will see in Anglo-Catholic circles, it's done. Um, but don't, don't walk into that with this assumption that says, this is idolatrous, this is treating the, treating the saints as if they're God. That's not what they're doing. And it's not, and it's not within Christian charity to just assume that's what's happening, because that's, that's, not, that's not the way that, that, that they're doing that. Um, there may, it may be an error, it may be futile, um, there may even be a little bit of superstition, but we don't necessarily know that to be true. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean that it's, that it's idolatry. Okay, I'm going to do something I probably shouldn't do, which is take five minutes and, try and hit, hit the icons in Nicaea 2 really quickly. Bottom line, the Seventh Council, which is the, council of, the Second Council of Nicaea, the Seventh Ecumenical Council, um, the controversy was whether it was okay to have depictions of, the, of, of Jesus, Mary, and the saints and to, um, in some way, honor those depictions, veneration. A lot of folks said, no, this is idolatry. Um, other folks said, no, you don't understand what you're talking about. The, the, the decree of the council was that there's a difference between worship and veneration. Um, and, that, and, and we see this in the way that we treat our earthly kings. We, the, the way we might honor an earthly king is, be, is not because we're treating them as God, but because, uh, because as the king, they, the, we, we owe them a certain amount of honor. How much more so? And, and, and we would do this even with, you know, you know, people do, and it's natural to do this with like depictions of your loved ones too, right? So, so they would say, the doctrine of the incarnation says that Jesus was fully man and is fully man, remains fully man. The incarnation never ends. Therefore, it is not a violation of the second commandment to depict Jesus because in his humanity, he could have been, if there was a photographer, he could have been, his picture could have been taken. That's not it. So that was the decree of the council. That was, that was the logic. Um, this council had a very slow acceptance in the West. Largely, there were some language issues. We don't need to get into that where they kind of, that, and, and it really boils down to the distinction between veneration and worship was always very fuzzy in the West. At the time of the Reformation, um, images are, are very heartily, heartily um, denounced, largely because our reformers said the way this is being practiced, there is no difference or there's, it's, this is a distinction without a difference between the honor you're giving to these images and actual worship. The way you are treating these is worship. Whether you're saying that this is a difference or not, it's a difference without distinction. But they also, and this is including the likes of like John Calvin, who's not one of our guys, but I mean, if, if Calvin is admitting this, you know that this is, this is a pretty, this, this, this has something to say. Um, that depictions of Jesus in of themselves are not idolatrous. It's the way you're going to use them. Because we all agree with what it said, with, with, with the theology here, that the incarnation means he was really a man, and therefore it's not a violation of the second commandment. Um, so how you use those is what matters. 
Um, so you will see in, in Anglican circles, almost everybody is okay with depictions of the Lord and depictions of the saints, including using them for ornamentation in the chapel like we would. Um, but we might be uncomfortable with some of the ways that things are done um, by, in some Roman Catholic circles, some Eastern Orthodox circles. We might see that as a superstition that is flirting with um, problematic things. Um, okay, we are, we have like no time at all. So uh, <laughs> we're going to do something different next week. We're not going to record anything more. This is the last of the recordings. But um, any, any spillover discussion, we can push off the next week um, before we start something new. If not, we'll just start something new next week. All right, I'll see you all. God bless.